Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would grant us understanding and knowledge of that word. I ask that you would give my brothers and sisters the grace of your Holy Spirit. You would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. And you give me the wisdom that I need as your appointed minister of the word to this congregation. That I would preach your word truthfully and plainly and to the glory of your name and the edification of the saints. In Jesus' name, Amen. God's knowledge is complete. His knowledge is comprehensive. His knowledge is exhaustive. And because God is the author of all knowledge, He has given to mankind the trust of dispersing that knowledge. That's one of the qualities that mankind has that animals do not have. We can learn things from animals, but you can only learn so much from a squirrel. A squirrel is not going to be able to teach you algebra, and a lion is not going to be able to preach the gospel to you. It just does not work that way. We are, mankind, God's vice regents. We are his representatives upon the earth, and we are to take care of the earth. And we Christians have been given the additional responsibility and honor of preaching the gospel throughout the world, spreading the kingdom of God. Now, the problem with knowledge is that sin entered the world ages ago. Adam chose willfully forbidden knowledge over and above the pure and great knowledge that God had freely given him. That was the first sin. Yes, he ate some fruit. Absolutely. But what he really did is he wanted that forbidden knowledge that the evil one tempted him and his wife with. Knowledge that the evil one had no authority to give and in in reality did not have to give. The wicked one has no knowledge that is not derivative from the Lord our God. So there's a problem. As a result, mankind's collective mind has become increasingly debased, degraded, and deranged. If you've looked around the world lately, you realize that indeed, men's minds, women's minds, children's minds are increasingly deranged. They've gone off course. And very few people seem to be able to think very clearly about any issue whatsoever. The Bible makes it very clear that knowledge is power. The Bible makes it very clear that knowledge is given to a Christian via God, particularly via through his word. And we as Christians have the honor, the duty, dare I say, and the responsibility of seeking out that knowledge. Christ has given to his church a great deposit of knowledge. Christ himself is the deposit of knowledge. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want knowledge, if you want wisdom, Jesus Christ is where and whom you must find it in. Now, 
If you want to learn to skydive, the Bible is not a skydiving manual. If you want to learn how to fix a Ford, this is not the place to do it. What the scriptures do is they teach us how to do those things in a godly manner. Believe it or not, there is a godly way to fix an automobile. First, you do it correctly. Secondly, if you hurt your hand while you're doing it, you don't cuss. If you're paying somebody to do it, you pay them the fair wage. If somebody is paying you, you do the honest work, and so on and so forth. But sadly, even in the church today, this idea of knowledge is not only frowned upon, but it is mocked. And as for the world, the idea that we can know anything is, believe it or not, coming under more and more scrutiny. There are certain things that we hold opinions on. Political candidates, literature, sports teams, a white shirt or a cream shirt. But those things really are somewhat inconsequential. But moral issues, moral issues and ethical issues are very black and white. You like to hear. Well, we don't like to hear. Well, sometimes we do, but very often we do hear. Well, the world is various shades of gray. That's just simply not true. Thou shalt murder means thou shalt not murder, period. End of discussion. Thou shalt not steal means thou shalt not steal under any circumstances. Thou shalt not commit adultery means thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall be holy as I am holy means you shall be holy as I am holy. Very, very clear and easy commandments to understand. Polls are showing that even Bible-believing Christians are growing increasingly wondrous if absolute truth is real. Can we really know things? There was a time in Western society when knowledge was sought out as an objective thing. Something you could discover. And then you kept studying a particular topic. And if you discovered more facts on that topic, then you altered your knowledge and conclusions of that topic. Now the idea is that we can know nothing. And we can't pin uh, the tail on the donkey of almost anything. Skepticism is the philosophical word for it. And it is rampant. In the universities, it is rampant in the marketplace, it is rampant every place. Although, ironically, if you steal somebody's goods, they become very skeptical of skepticism because they know that that was their stuff and you have it. And they know that the man with the badge will arrest you. It's interesting how inconvenient facts can be for us. Now, in this passage here, John is going to tell us that knowledge is power and that certain knowledge is given to a Christian so that we can combat the wicked one and the world. This is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. And again, it is not, John is not talking about algebra. If we look in verse 18, he's going to begin to make a number of assertions. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. John asserts that the Christian has the certainty of knowledge. It's very important that we understand that God has given us certain knowledge in certain areas. People say that we have blind faith. We have blind faith. 
We have faith based upon what God has said. We believe what He has said. We believe His Word. It is rock solid. Every belief system has to have a starting point. Listen to me very carefully. Wake up. Every belief system, every philosophy, has to have a starting point that cannot be objectively proven. It's called an axiom. You have to start somewhere. If you keep going back, where will you end? And never, never land. We begin with the Word of God. We say, here is an objective thing that you can look at. You can open it. You can read it. If you're multilingual, you can read it in many languages. You can study it, and it will prove itself to be trustworthy. It will prove itself to be coherent. It will make sense. The parts do fit together once you realize what the parts are. But in order to know that, you actually have to open the book and read it. And what John is telling us here is that we know. And what is it that we know in this context? That whoever is born of God does not sin. Well, first we have to define whoever is born of God. That simply means a Christian. Someone who is regenerate. Someone who is a child of God. The book of Ephesians tells us that He has made us alive when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now think about that statement just for a moment. If you're dead in the physical world, what does that mean? That's not a true question. It means you're dead. You can't breathe. You cannot respond. You cannot respond. Someone who is spiritually dead cannot respond to the gospel. They don't have the faculties. We do not expect corpses to actually hear us. We don't. We say we talk to our loved ones at a funeral, but we know that we're really talking to ourselves for our own comfort. Someone who is spiritually dead has to be made alive by the Spirit of God. They cannot hear. Now, if we are alive, if you know anything of the Christian truth, then that means you're a child of God. Only a Christian can understand spiritual things. But now what about this does not sin? It's not hard to understand what he's saying. He's saying Christians do not sin. So I guess that none of us are Christians. Because we all just confessed our sins, correct? No. John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, what does he say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says a number of interesting things. Listen to this one. 1 John 1, 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, but now John in chapter 5 is saying he was born of God does not sin. So he's contradicting himself, right? He's saying A is A and B is A. No, that's not what he's saying. In this context, it does help to, to be able to, to read the Greek just a little bit. What John is doing here is he's, he's using a, a particular Greek form 
to talk about a habitual, ongoing, obstinate, willful sin. In other words, sin is not the Christian's lifestyle. A Christian's lifestyle is diametrically different than a non-Christian. We do sin because John tells us to confess our sins. What happens, though, is that a Christian, once a Christian is made alive, we don't enjoy it as much as we should. We feel bad about it eventually. We realize that we need to go to God for forgiveness. Unbelievers, if you haven't noticed, don't have that knowledge. We speak to unbelievers that we love. And we speak to them with as much compassion as we can. And they just don't get it. They don't realize that what they've done is a sin. And they will make excuses for their sins. A Christian should not ever make excuses for his or her sin. Sin is to be confessed. Sin is to be brought to the atonement seat of God, the foot of Calvary, where the blood of Christ blots it out. Unbelievers don't do that. Unbelievers willfully, deliberately, consistently, and obstinately break the law of God. Christians do not do that. Yes, we all have areas where we struggle. That is true. But if you're a Christian and you were to say, Pastor, I have struggles in area A or struggles in area B, a particular sin, a particular commandment, and I were to ask you, hey... If I could say a, a prayer and it would be gone from your life forever, would you want me to say that prayer? Every Christian would say, well, yes, please, do you have that prayer? And I'd say, well, um, no, it was a hypothetical question. An unbeliever, however, loves this and they want to wallow in it. They enjoy it. They enjoy the gutter. They enjoy the gutter, no matter how much it stinks. A Christian should not enjoy the gutter. If you have a clean home in which to sleep, and clean linen on which to sleep, and you choose to sleep literally, physically, in a gutter or a sewer, we would view that as fairly insane behavior. Something would be terribly wrong with the gray matter. The synapses wouldn't be working very well. When we sin, that's what we're doing. Christ is gone and he is preparing a room for us in the Father's house. He has. And he has given us sanctuary here amongst the people of God. So when we go into the world, and by the world John is talking about that anti-Christian sentiment. He's not talking about the physical world. When we go into the world and we enjoy what John says is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We are acting contrary to our nature. And that is why we feel bad. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. And if we persist in that sin, the Holy Spirit will turn up the heat. And if we keep going, the heat will go hotter and hotter and hotter until we realize, better get out of this oven. Better get out of this oven into the cool mist of God's forgiveness. That is what John is talking about here when he says, He who is born of God does not sin. We don't sin because we are born of God. And the wicked one does not touch him. It's important for you to realize that God keeps us, as this verse says. God keeps us. 
If your salvation depended upon you and your obedience, how secure would you be? If your salvation was dependent upon how well you did every day in obedience to God's law, I think all of us would do well to live in a state of consistent paranoia. Actually, it wouldn't be paranoid because you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. And if your salvation depended upon your obedience, just give it up. It's over. Same for me. God keeps us. God's spirit is within us. God's spirit is amongst us. He is the one who has quickened us. He gives us the strength for the journey and the wicked one cannot touch us. The wicked one cannot touch us. The devil exists. He is real. He is not a free agent. He cannot do as he wishes. The book of Job makes it clear that he reports to God. And God allows him, for reasons that God has not told us, to wreck all kinds of havoc. God has not told us why. I don't have an answer for why God let evil into the world. I do not know. Because God has not told anybody. If anybody says they know the answer to that question, they are a liar because it's not here. I've looked. It's not there. We have to leave that in the hands of God. But the evil one cannot touch you. John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you, that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. We sometimes feel overwhelmed. We sometimes feel as if uh, evil is winning. And we sometimes feel that way in our personal life. And the fact is that that is just not true. It is not true. Will we have valleys? Yes. Will we have mountaintop experiences? Yes. But kids, you can only stay at the top of the mountain for so long before the altitude gets so high. And you don't want to spend any time in the valley if possible. The safest place is literally the middle of the mountain. And walk strong and steady. A slow, steady progress towards the end of time is the safest path. That is the safest path. The evil one can't touch you. He has no claim on the church. We see these movies where we see uh, holy men of various denominations in terror of the devil. And they fill the room with crosses. And when the person who's allegedly possessed by the evil one comes in and they they all shiver, it's rather quite the opposite. When you read the Gospels, it's the devils who are afraid of Jesus. They're terrified of the guy. They're scared of us. They're scared of you because you're holy in God's sight. They're scared of you because you actually have this knowledge. Even if you don't know that you have this knowledge. And if you've been in church for a long time and you don't know that you have this knowledge, well, now you do. They're scared. They hate us. And well, they should. John then goes on in verse 19 to tell us something else we know. We know that we are of God. You can know that you're of God. I'm going to ask you flat out. Are you? Are you a Christian? I've told all of you, particularly you children, you'll have moments in your adult life where you wonder, Man, I'm not really sure. I've really been, I've not been doing too well lately. I wonder if I'm really saved. Well, when you have those moments of doubt, 
You have two choices. Look in the mirror and see your sinful failings or look in God's word and realize what God says. Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. And you turn your face away from that mirror and you, you, you put yourself right into that verse. Have you trusted Christ with your eternal soul? If God were to come back right now, if the Son of God were to return, return right now, and boy, wouldn't that be fantastic. What would you say to him when he asked you, why should I let you into heaven forever? If your answer is anything besides, Christ died for my sins, then you will forfeit yourself. You remember the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee is praying to God and he's bragging to God about all the good things he's done. I do this and I do that and I thank you that I'm not like that publican over there. Publican was a tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like him. And the publican didn't even raise his head up to heaven, but just kept beating his breast and saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those men do you think walked away justified? Just in God's court. Declared righteous in God's court. It was the publican, not the Pharisee. You have to acknowledge your sins. Acknowledge that you've earned eternal perdition. And acknowledge that Christ alone is the way to the Father. You can know that by simply trusting him. And that knowledge is a source of great comfort. And we also know something else. That the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. What is the world? What's the whole world? The church? Churches. Churches in the world, right? We're here. Are you here now? Do you have that knowledge? You're here. Terra firma. You are here. I promise you. You can know that. It's funny how people say that knowledge isn't objective. They do believe in gravity. They don't test that particular theory. The world is that anti-Christian system that's out there that hates the church. That wants to foist upon the church evil. That wants Christians to bow the knee to Caesar. And our ancestors didn't do it. Our ancestors went to the stake for it. Our ancestors burnt for it. Are we willing to do that? Or are we so scared of Caesar that we're willing to give up what God has given to us? The world lies in sway of the evil one. You see, if you look at that passage, there's a couple of words in italics. I've told you, the words in italics just make clear what's not clear in the Greek. Because here's the way the sentence reads in Greek. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies the wicked one. It makes sense in the Greek, it doesn't make sense in English. You have to add some words to complete the sentence. Under the sway. When when you say he's under the sway of something, what does that mean? It means he's in the ether. He's susceptible. Have you ever seen somebody after they've, uh, years ago, when you, I don't even know if they do it anymore, when you went to the dentist and they had to do something incredibly painful, they would give you that gas. And when you came out, how did you feel? And only, I, they only put me under once, and I did not feel very good when I woke up. I was young, I woke up and I was confused. I was in my grandmother's 
living room and I was lying on the couch that only my grandfather lied on. I knew something was wrong. Nobody lied on the couch but him. There I was. Very dizzy, feeling sick to my stomach, definitely in the wrong place, and there was nobody else in the house. I was terrified. I was under the sway, under the influence of that gas. I quickly got up and started yelping about, and well, everybody was in the backyard having a picnic, and I quickly felt okay, and I was actually not in trouble for lying on the couch because somebody had placed me there. When we say that the whole world is under the sway of evil, and that means that they are in the ether. They buy the lies. And the implication is that Christians are not under the sway of the evil one. That we see through the sales pitch. That we see through the sales pitch. Are you able to do that? Are you able to realize what the world is trying to sell you? And to realize that it's snake oil. That you buy it and then you need to buy some more. And then some more. Take drug addiction. It escapes my, my rational mind why anyone in their right mind would ever stick a needle in their arm. Knowing that they will get addicted. They know it's going to happen and yet they do it. They buy the lie. It's happening to millions of people. We have the knowledge that prevents that from happening to us. And then he continues and closes. We know that the Son of God has come. He's come. And he's given us an understanding. An understanding of what? An understanding that we may know him who is true. That's the Father. Christ has come and given us access to the Father. There are many, many well-meaning people who forget that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You will hear it and mistakenly said, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. That's true. You come to Jesus as the path. He is the way to the Father. The Father is the one who grants forgiveness. Each member of the Trinity has a particular role, a particular function, if you will. Being in the Father's house is what Jesus wants us to be. Behold, my Father's house has many rooms. Jesus doesn't talk about His house. It's the Father's house. And we know that we are in Him who is true. That is the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What John is saying here is very, very clear. That we have powerful knowledge at our fingertips. The knowledge of the certainty of our salvation. The knowledge of the certainty of the truth of biblical revelation. The knowledge of certainty that the wicked one cannot touch us. And the knowledge of certainty that the entire world is under the sway, under the laughing gas, under the ether of the wicked one. That knowledge is yours. That knowledge is power. And that knowledge is at your fingertips. Will you take it or not? Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of this spiritual knowledge. And we ask that each of us would press on higher and higher to greater degrees and greater uh, levels, greater depths of this knowledge. In Jesus' name, Amen.